You're listening to sermon audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. We're still in 1 John right now. We're in chapter 2. So I'm going to start by reading our text for this morning. Uh, So 1 John chapter 2, we will be looking at verses 7 through 11. It says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that um, you would help us to um, find assurance and conviction and truth in your word this morning, um, that you would uh, cause us to love you more, love our uh, neighbor more, specifically those of the household of God as well, and that uh, we would be even more careful to walk in obedience um, after the hearing of your word this morning. Um, I pray that it would help us uh, to gain discernment as well, um, and that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but would be able to stand on your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... We are in 1 John, and this letter was most likely uh, written as a compliment to be delivered with his gospel. So John wrote the Gospel of John, same author here. He wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. He wrote a bunch of things. A lot of the New Testament is him. Um, But this letter specifically, a lot of scholars think, was to be delivered when the gospel was delivered to the churches. So you have his gospel and his letter to go along with it, almost like a commentary, um, shortened version, um, you know, an explanation, those kind of things. And so John's express goal um, in this letter and in his gospel is that his readers would experience the same kind of fellowship with God that John and the apostles experienced when Jesus was on earth and that our joy in hearing these things would be complete. That's what he writes in the first chapter of of this letter. And so a lot of these concepts about loving God, uh, fellowship with God, fellowship with other Christians, light and darkness, truth and falsehood, a lot of these things are expanded upon and expounded on in John's gospel, and that's really his goal. Fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, that our joy would be complete. That's John's goal. It's the goal of the Christian life. It's the goal of this letter. Um, But why was this letter written specifically? Because most, I would say even all, of the letters of the New Testament are written to address a specific problem, either a moral problem in the church or a false teaching or both. And the backdrop to John's people, why he's writing this, is that they were facing teachers who had risen up in the church and had led people astray and then had left the church. We'll see that as we continue. First uh, John 2.19 talks about people going out from us. So there were these teachers that rose up, led a bunch of people astray, and then left. And this caused some serious disturbance in the church that, or churches that John is writing to. 
um, because they were starting to doubt, like, wow, do we, do we even know God? You know, I see people who I was certain had fellowship with God, fellowship with us, and then they left. Um, so that's the backdrop. And specifically, this group of teachers would be what we would now call today Gnostics. Um, and so whether or not they were necessarily known by that term at the time um, is debatable. Uh, the Gnostics were a group that existed a little bit before uh, Christ's life and certainly after. And it's kind of an umbrella term. It's, it's hard to get specific nuance on all of what Gnostics thought and taught. Um, but scholars would call this the second heresy of the church, the first heresy being Judy, Judaizers, not Judaism, but Judaizers, people who were in the church and still clung to their Jewish heritage and wanted to add to the gospel law, you know, add to the gospel, okay, yes, Jesus is sufficient, all of that, but you still need to get circumcised. I mean, we've been doing this for thousands of years, right? That was kind of the first problem that sprung up in the church, but this followed closely after the Gnostics. It's a cult, and we need to understand what they believe um, to understand why John was writing to these Christians who were receiving this letter and what they were dealing with. So I'm going to give you kind of like a brief, really short, almost like systematic theology of Gnosticism. So what did they think about God? What did they think about creation, fall, humanity, Jesus, the gospel? So it'll be brief. But first, with God, Gnostics thought that God was transcendent, that he was spirit, he was other, he was high and lofty, separate from creation, and we would say, okay, so far so good. They would say he was transcendent, but not imminent, meaning Christians think God is imminent in the sense that he is near to us. Although he is transcendent, he also interacts with us, he cares about us, he reveals himself to us, he made us. Gnostics don't believe that at all. Gnostics think that uh, God is so high and lofty and separate that it would be sinful or wrong or above him to have anything to do with matter or material. This was kind of their big sticking point, I guess, is that matter, material, the creation, the world, the universe was wrong in and of itself, error prone in and of itself, evil in and of itself, and that God, true God, would have nothing to do with it. So he's transcendent but not imminent. So that brings us to creation. Like I said, they think it's evil. And they think God wouldn't have been, had any part in it. And the God or sub-God that did uh, produce creation was evil himself and or dumb. And they think that's the God of the Old Testament. They think Yahweh is some sub-God that got confused and made the world for bad motives, but the real God would never have done this because he's spirit and pure. So that's God, that's creation. Then you have fall. Well, the fall or fall into sin is the same thing as creation. Just the fact that there is creation is how sin is entered into the equation. Creation itself is what's wrong with the world. Uh, then we have humanity. So what they think about humanity is that there's a spark of the divine caged up in these evil bodies. And so the only thing that's good and pure and right about you is the fact that you have the divine in you. Um, and these kind of things are still talked about today. People believe this kind of stuff for sure. So not the Imago Dei, not that we're made in the image of God, but that you actually have, like you, you essentially are part of God or part of God is you. Um, and that that's part of their view of salvation is that God is trying to draw all the pieces back to himself. So not Imago Dei, spark of the divine trapped in human form and that there's different levels of humanity. And how do you know if you're at the highest level? It's if you believe Gnostic teaching, right? 
how do you know that you are wise enough or that God is revealing himself to you? It's if you believe this. It's convenient, right? <laughs> how do you know you're doing better than everyone else? If you believe me, the false teacher, right? So this is how this was started. Believing Gnostic teaching was a sign that you were closer to the divine. And then their views on Jesus. So their view was that he could not be both human and divine because of their pre-commitments to the evil nature of creation. Not just humanity, but just creation in general. He could not be both human and divine because human and divine cannot mix. So they either believed one of two things, adoptionism, meaning Jesus was just a guy, but he lived so well that God wanted to adopt him in a special way, different than how we would believe in, you know, God adopts us through faith in Christ, different than that. But the second one uh, is docetism. And this is a heresy that this was more common for the Gnostics. Docetism, I know there's a lot of preamble, but we'll, we'll get to the text. Docetism states that Jesus did have divine spirit or was a spirit, but that's all he was. Any view of his humanity, any idea of the incarnation, that's illusion. You were tricked. He didn't really live on earth. He was a phantasm. He was a spirit. Um, he certainly didn't die on the cross. Um, and Gnostic teaching is actually mixed up in and why, where you get a lot of Islam's teaching, that Jesus wouldn't have died on a cross. He was spirit, so Judas may be swapped out with him at the very end, right? Islam, or I should say Muhammad, got a lot of this stuff from traveling with Gnostics. And so, yeah, they don't believe Jesus was divine. If he was divine at all, then his flesh was an illusion. The incarnation is not real. The cross is not real. The resurrection is not real. You will not get a resurrected body. Their gospel message is that the fall being identical to creation itself, uh, they coincide, meaning whatever we do in the body is completely separate and unrelated from the spirit. So the appeal, why they gained followers, was their message was, do as you please. It has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. It has nothing to do with what's pure and divine about you. Do as you please. And also, since the true God is transcendent and has nothing to do with you, there's no fear of upsetting him. There's no judgment day. There's no care to obey him at all. And salvation for them is to have these truths revealed to you. Salvation comes by enlightenment, not faith. And ultimately, the serpent didn't trick Adam and Eve, he liberated them. You will be like God. That's the goal. So for them, salvation comes from special knowledge that you couldn't possibly know. It's secret knowledge revealed to these teachers by God. And the, the end goal is to escape the body and live in a disembodied state in like an ethereal plane forever, which a lot of Christians think that's what heaven is anyway. Um, not knowing that we will be resurrected, we will have bodies, we will live on a redeemed earth. Uh, they believed you'll just escape your body, that's salvation. So I tell you all of this because it helps to understand why John says the things he does in this letter. Because there's a ton of times when, when he'll say like, don't trust spirits that say Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And you're like, why did you insert that? Like, what is happening, right? Well, it's because this is who he's battling with. Um, and when you see a lot of these verses about, no, you need to obey, Christians obey. Christians don't just get to live however they want. It's because the Gnostics were in the church saying, yeah, you can be perfectly divine, perfectly pure, and still do whatever you want. And so John is trying to combat these false teachings. And so in light of this second heresy of the church, Gnosticism, John is fighting against it and we get this letter. 
And the, the letter ultimately is assurance to the Christian that you already know God. You already know what you need to know to have a relationship with God and to walk out the Christian life. Because where the word Gnostic comes from is to know or knowledge. That's where it comes from. And it's this idea that these teachers had special knowledge that the apostles didn't get, that I don't get in my Bible, that I can't see and understand from looking at the world, reading the Bible, talking to my pastor. No, these people know things that I don't know and they gained a huge following and then they left the church. Is there something I'm missing? Are there teachers in the world that know things that I need to know to have a better relationship with God to be more who I was made to be? And John is writing this letter to them, assuring them, no, Christian, you already know, K-N-O-W, what they don't know and can never tell you. You already are sufficient in your knowledge. The Bible is sufficient for all things relating to life and godliness. Now what's funny is, or not funny, but unfortunate, is that most of the time when I hear the letter of 1 John taught, it is taught almost from a Gnostic perspective. What I mean by that is many pastors and teachers will teach 1 John almost with this idea that there is a Christian test deep in these pages. And you have to read them and you have to pass the test. And there's a secret level of obedience or knowledge of whether or not you're a Christian And I can't tell you exactly what that is, but if you read it, you'll know whether or not you're a Christian or not because of how well you obey. Um, Has anyone ever heard 1 John called like the Christian test or read it and test and see if you're a Christian? I've definitely heard that, right? The problem with that is the letter is not written to test the Christians. The letter was written to the Christians to test the false teachers. Over and over and over again, and in fact, 38 times from my count, John tells them, you know. You already know. (laughs) You know for certain. You know the gospel. You know him. You know from the beginning. You've already known. You have it. He says that over and over and over again to them. But then he says, but test every spirit who would challenge Christ. So the test is not for them. It's for the false teachers. Now, to give credit to people who say this is a Christian test, because I know what they mean, and it's not necessarily Gnostic, but I'm just saying it can come, it can get there if we're not careful. Incidentally, when you hear a Christian tell you this is how you test false Christians, you should probably put yourself through that filter and go, well, just, I just want to make sure, am I really a Christian? So that's fair, and that's safe, and that's a good idea. But I think the goal of the letter is not to test Christians, but to test false teaching. So with that, the test we're going to look at today for the false teachers is the test of love. The Gnostics lacked love. They didn't think it was important. Um, They didn't have love from the source of having a relationship with God. So ultimately, they're not going to have really strong love ethic. Um, And so the idea here is that Gnostics lacked love, but Christ and his people do not. And so what we're going to look at is three things here. The command to love being old. So we're going to look at the command to love. That's what we're going to look at here from John. The command to love is something that's old. The command to love is something that's new. And the command to love is something that's revealing. So that's what we're going to look at. So the first thing is that the command to love is old. So look at verse 7. It says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old one that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
So first, I just want to pause for a second on this word beloved or beloved. Um, I really like this. Uh, it just means the loved ones, the, lo the ones who, like you could think be, meaning are, you are loved. So the are loved ones. Um, and John, what's kind of interesting is John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, not in the sense of being in contrast to the other disciples, but in the sense of focus on the personal nature of Christ's love for him. And, you know, in following, I think in following his Lord, John is now calling his disciples loved ones. And so the love of Christ had a real impact on John. And uh, I feel a sense of camaraderie with John because he had, had a lot of rough edges, you know, that seemed to have been smoothed off by the love of God, um, specifically Christ's love for him. Because uh, early on in the Gospels, he's called the son of thunder, right? And there's this moment when there's some people who are like kind of antagonistic to Jesus and John's like looking around. He's like, Jesus, you want me to like call down fire from heaven on them? Because I mean, I could do it like that, <laughs> which is ridiculous on so many levels, right? Um, but so we have this son of thunder that's like, yeah, any opposition, we'll just take them out, right? Um, call down fire from heaven. You know, you can do that, right, Jesus? And instead, he becomes the guy that's like, you know, I'm the one Jesus loves. I love you guys. I love my disciples. Hey, beloved ones, right? So you can kind of see through the arc of his life, you know, Jesus is shaving off the rough corners. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, I think I'm, I'm probably like on my journey there because I would say I'm probably both the most critical pastor in our church, but also most likely to cry while preaching. So <laughs> I think I'm like, I'm on my, I'm on my way, you know? Um, so... And that's no joke. I hope I don't cry. Um, so, uh, but so what he says here, what he starts off with is, you have this commandment. You have this commandment to love, and it's old. And he even says, it's old commandment that, that you've had from the beginning. So what does he mean by that, from the beginning? Um, I want to look at a couple verses really quick. So the first one being uh, in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, uh, verses 37 through 40. So this is when Jesus is asked about the commandments. Um, so someone asked him, you know, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So when he says you had this commandment from the beginning, maybe he means from the beginning of the New Testament era, right? Going back to, you know, because this, this letter was written late in the first century. So it could be, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, he's referring to, yeah, when Jesus taught, this is the great commandment, to love God, and second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe that's what John's referring to, is you've had this from the beginning. Um, and then a little later than that, you know, you've got Romans 13, which I'll just read really quick. Romans 13, uh, eight and nine, Paul is kind of expounding upon the great commandment. And he says, uh, owe no one anything except to love each other for the love, uh, for the one who loves has, uh, another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And I could go on and on back all the way to, um, you know, I'll read it. You know, here, here we are. We're at church. I'll read it. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 6, verse 5. Uh, you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Um, and these words that I command you shall be on your heart. 
So you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, and I don't know which one John is referring to, because you could even go all the way back to eternity past, because 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love, right? So we, we could look and look on and on, back and back, and I don't know which one he means by you've had this from the beginning, but I don't think that's necessarily the point. And honestly, knowing John, he might mean all of them. Just, he's kind of a wily cat like that. <laughs> um, and so I think the point of this is what he's saying is your faith, either this means the beginning of your faith or the beginning of the New Testament or eternity past, I think the point is he's stressing this command to love and this idea of the gospel, Christ's example of love in the gospel. You already have it. I think that's the point he's making. He says in verse seven, I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So it's from the beginning, you have it, you've heard it, in contrast to this, quote, new teaching of the Gnostics, which placed knowledge as the centerpiece, not love, and claimed that this knowledge comes from self. You have to study and understand yourself, not study and understand the character of God. So why the command to love? It's because God is love, like I said. Um, you could think of it, and I've said this stuff before, but like these commandments are not arbitrary. They come from the character of God. They come from his nature, right? So why does God command to love? Because he is love. Why are we commanded not to steal? Because God is not a thief. Why are we commanded not to commit adultery? It's because God is faithful, and he's faithful especially to his bride. And so knowledge of reality, and specifically morality, comes not from looking inward, but from looking at the character of God specifically as it's revealed in scripture and in Christ. And so I think what John is saying is you don't need to seek novel doctrines. John is assuring the Christians, you already know Christ. You already know the truth. Like I said, he uses the word know almost 40 times in these five chapters. And so the command to love is old. This is not something new. I'm not here to start a new doctrine, new teaching ministry. The command to love is old. And as is John's way, he says something that gives preachers a headache. At the same time, it's a new commandment I'm writing to you. (laughs) So he says, uh, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does that mean, right? Uh, So he says, the new commandment is new And the word new, there's a couple different words for new in the Greek. There's neos, which is like neo, like, we still use the word neo in front of things to to say new version of that thing. But then there's, I think it's kainos, uh, which is what he's using here. And it's not new in the sense of like, it's a totally new version. It's new in the sense that it's fresh. It's the same thing, but it's fresh. And so what he's saying here is, at the same time, it is a fresh commandment. It's been refreshed. So what does that mean? It's the new commandment was new in the sense that it is the manifestation of love, the same love you've been commanded to do from the beginning of time, the same love that's been exampled for us in scripture. It's new in that it is manifested in Christ for the first time ever. So all previous commands to love and all previous examples of love were just shadows of Christ's command to love and his example to love in the gospel, right? Compared to Christ's 
example of love. You look at Jacob waiting 14 years to marry Rachel, it's a shadow. It's a shadow, right? Compared to Christ's love, you look at Abraham being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, it's a shadow. But when God himself takes on a body like ours just so that he can lay it down in our place, that is not a shadow, that's reality. That is the very thing casting the shadow down the timeline of redemptive history, and it's come. The command to love has been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. He said in Matthew 5, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've not come to do away with your need to love each other, as is this Gnostic teaching to say, it doesn't matter if you love each other. He's saying, I've not come to do that. I've come to perfectly obey it, perfectly example it, and perfectly command it of you. John 13, 34, he says to his disciples on his night before he's killed, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And they're probably thinking, that was new? I thought you already said that. But he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Never, ever, in all of history, in all of time, had God taken on flesh, perfectly obeyed on our behalf, and was butchered on our behalf. That's never happened before. And so what's new about the commandment to love? Christ. It's the gospel. It's the command to love the way he loved and the example of him laying down his life for his friends. And since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been looking forward to kind of this light, right? John says in uh, verse eight here, he says, The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. And I think since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been looking forward to this light that's dawning, waiting for the head-crushing son of Eve, son of Adam. Um, And from then until Christ's coming, they were waiting for the dawn. And John says the darkness is now passing away and the true light is already shining. And it shines, he says, in him, perfectly. And he says, and in you imperfectly, right? Uh, I saw one commentator say, this command to love is as old as the sun and as new as the dawn. I think that's a perfect way of saying it. And I think of it as, you know, he is literally the sunrise and we are like tarnished mirrors. We might have varying degrees of gunk all over ourselves. We might be varying degrees of tilted the right way to receive his light. But if you're a Christian, you reflect his light. The new light is already shining perfectly in him and imperfectly in us. Which is why, here's a trick question, who is the light of the world in scripture? Who's the light of the world? You guys know? Jesus. Jesus. And? Christians, Christians. yeah. Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Somebody grew up in Sunday school. Um, Okay, so John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world. But then he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see the same author wrote that, wrote this, right? So Jesus is the light of the world, but if you follow him, you will have this same light, which is why in Matthew 14, or Matthew, sorry, 5, 14 through 16, he can write, and you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that can't be hidden. So let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So Christ is the light of the world. This darkness is passing away. The light is already shining perfectly in the incarnation of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for us, but it's also now shining in Christians. So the command to love is old, the command to love is new, and the command to love is revealing. So what do I mean by this? So let's look at verses nine through 11. He says, whoever says, he's gonna say whoever a few times, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Just kind of the flip of John eight that I just read about. If you follow Christ, you won't be in darkness, you'll have the light. But he says, whoever says he's in the light hates his brother, he's still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So I see kind of three things here. So in verse nine, it says, this one, you know, this whoever who says they're in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think he's probably starting to like move towards specifically aiming at these false teachers now these people who were in the church that led people astray and said, I'm in the light, I walk with Jesus, I have a relationship with God, but I don't love people and I don't think I need to and I don't think you need to, right? I think he's starting to target them. So he's saying this person is, he quote, quote, still in darkness. Meaning, John is not saying such a person was in the light and has left to go back to the darkness. He's saying, if you think you're a Christian, and you think you walk with God, and you think you have no obligation to love anybody, and in fact you think it's fine to just hate people, you not only were in darkness, you have never left the darkness. You didn't leave the light, you never left the darkness, you are still in it. Because the reality is no one can have a vertically proper relationship with God and a terrible horizontal relationship with their friends in the church, neighbors, other people, right? Love from God, relationship with God affects how we relate to each other. And he contrasts this with the man in verse 10. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. And I think that might be a little bit of a translational not issue, because there is a footnote. It says, in it, there is no cause for stumbling. I think that's probably right. It says, whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, in it, there's no stumbling. I think meaning, there's, you don't stumble in the light. Um, I don't think it means in that person there's no stumbling. Because um, that, we don't believe that. <laughs> um, but uh, what he's saying is, the, the kind of person who loves his brother is someone who's been changed by Christ, been changed by the gospel. It doesn't mean that if you love your brother, brothers and sisters in the church well enough, then you get to be a Christian. Obviously, John doesn't mean that. What he's saying is, is the kind of person who loves his brother is the kind of person who walks in the light. Those are related, they're connected. If you walk with Jesus, you don't hate your brothers and sisters in Christ or anybody else for that matter, right? Jesus says, love your enemies. He forgave his people crucifying him on the cross. And so he says, when you're in the light, there's no cause for stumbling. So the first thing here is he's saying this person uh, who claims to be in the light but still hates his brother, they are in the darkness. And then next he says, they're not just in it, they walk in the darkness. Look at verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. So they're not just in it, but they walk in it. So to be in the darkness, I think, refers to your character, your being, your essence. You are still in the dark. 
But to walk in darkness refers to your behavior. And you can see one flows out of the other. Behavior flows from being. What you do is inseparable from who you are. If you walk in the darkness, you have to already be in the darkness. I would love to see a diagram of how someone can walk in the dark without being in the dark. It doesn't make any sense. So what John is saying is they're in the darkness and they walk in the darkness. The reverse is also true. I would love to see someone walk in the light without being in the light. Explain that one for me, right? How do you live the Christian life without abiding in God's word, loving his teaching, loving God, loving neighbor? How do you do it? You, you can't, right? You have, those things have to be a part of the Christian life. Now again, imperfectly. We are not the sun rising in the dawn. We are the tarnished mirrors, but even though it's imperfect, it's there. So, if you are a Christian, some level of light is in you, and so to some degree you will behave differently. But this is the work of God, not your works. So first he's in the darkness, then he walks in the darkness, and then last, he's blinded by the darkness. In verse 11 it goes on to say, he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So he doesn't know where he's going, the darkness has blinded his eyes, and to this, I saw a commentary point this out and I thought this was a really good analogy. Think of it like a mole who lives its entire life underground, or a fish that never leaves the deep, deep waters of the ocean. If you spend long enough in the darkness, you will hate the light if you're able to see it at all. And this is why hatred is the behavior that follows the condition of being in the dark. This is why hatred flows from that. And you'll notice I'm careful to say being blind is not a result of hating people. It's the reverse. You hate people because you're blind, because you're in the dark, because you love the darkness. And this is why theology matters. This is why we need to be vigilant in our thinking and our study of God. We need to hold fast to his word and not worldly ideologies and worldviews. And, and it's because of this. We are so prone to love the darkness. We are so prone to turn our mirror away, right? We, in our flesh, apart from God working in us, we are so prone to love the darkness and manufacture systems like Gnosticism or the Judaizers or any other system. We're so prone to manufacture systems that will allow us to appease our conscience all the while living totally against God, against his people, and against his word. We do it naturally, instinctively. And so... I loved this. Uh, this was a quote from Paul Washer when he was kind of speaking on this text as well. He said, you want to be loved the way he loves you, but you do not want to be loved the way you love others. You don't want that to happen because we would all end up in hell. We sing about mercy, we sing about grace, and then we are like a miser when it comes to giving it out to others. And it's because of this disconnect, right? It's because we are not yet fully in the light. And for these false teachers, they weren't in the light at all. And so this is a test for the false teachers. And like I said, incidentally, you should put yourself through this filter. You should ask yourself, do I love with Christ's love to any degree? Am I filled with hatred for my brother? Because the Gnostics believed that all matter was sinful and unrelated from the spirit, it led them to one of two errors, right? The first was asceticism, and, and by the way, neither of these led to love. Neither of these errors ha happened to end them up with love. They're one of two errors, either asceticism, meaning 
severe discipline, severe avoidance of all indulging of any kind, of any material, anything of the earth. Um, This was less common. You see this addressed in Colossians. Paul talks about asceticism. They were falling into that. This idea that, again, because matter, because material, because the earth is wrong and sinful, just avoid it at all costs. Eat Eat as little as you can, live as little as you can, enjoy the world as little as you can, don't get married, don't have kids. Like, this was the message of asceticism because the world is sinful and evil. The other, though, and the more common one, was licentiousness. Because all sin you commit on earth in the body, they would say, doesn't matter, absolute indulgence in immorality was permissible. One could disregard God's law completely, and John was emphasizing the need for obedience for the Christian. Not to earn salvation, but because if you have no obedience, if you have no love for Christ and love for neighbor, it shows that you have not yet understood and been saved. John emphasized this need for obedience when he defined true love of God as obedience to his commandments. So I'll I'll wrap it up here. Beloved, it is so much easier to attain knowledge than love. And this is something that I am often guilty of. It is so much easier to work on your knowledge than to work on your love. Satan has knowledge. Satan has more knowledge than anyone in this room probably will ever have in their entire lifetime put together. Demons have knowledge. Atheists have knowledge, even if they can't account for why. All people on earth have some knowledge of truth. And knowledge is important. It is essential for saving faith. You must know Christ. You must know the gospel. You have to know it to believe it and trust it. Knowledge will produce a change of heart. Knowledge can produce a change of behavior. That's why I'm up here right now. (laughs) I'm trying to deliver knowledge, right? Knowledge is important. And right theology is of vital importance. But it is so much easier to get your theology right than your heart right. It is so much easier to say the right thing and think the right thing and have a high standard of theology than it is to just be nice to people. It is so much easier. And so right theology is of vital importance and what we believe does affect how we live. And honestly, the reason I'm preaching this right now rather than just, I don't know, walking around being nice to you all is because right theology will affect your heart. Right theology will change the way you live if received with the right heart. So what we believe about God is of supreme importance, and I think, just to close, Gnosticism illustrates two things for us. First, we need to be people of the word. The reason all the people in this church were led astray, the the reason these people left and followed these false teachers, the reason these false teachers even rose up at all is because they did not value God's word. Specifically, they did not think God's word was sufficient. They thought there is truth in here, Sure, but there's probably other truth, other higher knowledge that I could attain to out there or even more specifically in here. There's probably some soul searching I need to do, some navel gazing I need to do to understand the deeper realities of the universe and why I was made. This mysticism has lots of candy wrappers right now in our culture. There are, I could go on and on with you about all the different ways that this Gnostic ideology shows up and it still is prevalent today. But the idea is, church, I want you to see that the Bible is sufficient. It is all you need and more than all you need to know who God is, know who you are, 
And like I went through that little systematic theology at the beginning, it is all you need to know who God is, to know about creation, fall, redemption, Christ, yourself, the afterlife, the gospel, it is sufficient. And if you hear claims of any other kind, you need to ask, by what standard? When you hear any other worldly ideology, any other worldview, or as Paul calls it, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of Christ, he says you have divine power to demolish those strongholds, to tear down those opinions. We don't tear down people. He says our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against opinions and it is against ideologies. And we need to be people of the word that know it well, view it as sufficient, and are bold enough to speak it to a world that is lost. So that's the first thing that I think this Gnosticism shows us. We need to be people of the word that value it as our highest authority and completely sufficient. And secondly, I don't know about you, but at least when I was studying all this stuff about Gnosticism and hearing their false ideology, every single part of it made me think, wait, no, you're missing it. Wait, no, you're missing it, right? God is transcendent, but he's not imminent. Well, why would you want that God? You know, that's not God. You know, um, yeah, you have a spark of divine, but you're not made in his image and you're just trying to escape your body. No, like, no, you're missing it. And so this study of Gnosticism, this study of 1 John, what it really made me do is, is cherish the gospel more. Cherish what reality really is more because what the Bible says is true of reality, not only is it true, but it's much more beautiful, much more satisfying that we are children of God made in his image, that before the foundations of the world, he knew us and loved us. He is not distant. He is not apart from us. It's not that he doesn't care what we do. He cares deeply. And it's not that just he was some phantasm to come and tell us how to be spirits. He came, he took on flesh, he dwelt among us. We see the glory as of the only son from the father. He lived perfectly on our behalf. He died sacrificially in our place. He rose again. He will give us perfect bodies like the one he has right now. And we will live forever, not just as disembodied spirits, but as physical bodies enjoying both spirit and creation perfectly in harmony with God, not distant from him forever. That is a far more beautiful picture of the world, and it's true. And so we now get to worship the God-man who is now and forever both God and man with us. He didn't see flesh as something to be despised and avoided, but he took it on, died on a cross for us, rose from the dead, and there um, we, we see our Savior. And so um, we're now going to worship and take communion together, but my call to you would be um, to trust, trust only in this Savior. Nothing else can save. So pray with me. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are Father, that though you are holy and other and transcendent and uh, exist eternally as spirit, um, that you are not distant, but that you love us, um, you love us enough to send your son to die for us, that you send your spirit to indwell us, um, that we can have a relationship with you um, filled with, as John says, complete joy. So I pray that we would not seek worldly ideologies, that we would not seek to find knowledge about the world and you and us elsewhere, but that we would study our Bible, that we would have our noses and our Bibles at all times. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear um, and eyes to see, hearts that would be receptive to your word, 
that we would cherish it, that we'd see revival in the church, that we'd see awakening in our land, that mass repentance would break out, that we'd be bold preachers of the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.